tap dancing like hell. Like, am I Sammy Davis Jr.? Like, what are we talking about? <laughs> Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr., and I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. Hey, good morning, good evening, good night. Wherever you are in the world, you are now under the beautiful tone of Humanize, the podcast. Talking about social justice, again, taking it to a whole nother level. We appreciate each and every one of you. Today, we also want to send a disclaimer. Again, we like to do that ever so often just to keep this at the forefront of your mind that we're, we have gained the permission of every individual that we speak to to dive into these topics. And so at the end of the day, please make sure you do the same. Um, and let's get to this work, y'all. Much love. Humanize. Let's go, Emily. All right. So we have an amazing guest today. I'm super excited to welcome Vani Tangela. Vani and I go back a few years where she was one of the people that brought me in to do a keynote um, a while back at her last job. And so I'm psyched to reconnect with you. Welcome, Vani. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Courtney. So happy to be here. It's an honor. I love listening to all of your previous podcast episodes. So thank you for letting me be here. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So I am super interested in where this conversation is going to go today because we're going to be exploring with Vani the the inner work of racism when it comes to changing systems, um, particularly trauma-informed systems. So we're going to be kind of unpacking what it means to show up in a conversation about race or equity. And, you know, naturally we all bring our personal trauma, our intergenerational trauma, racial trauma amongst others. How do we, how do we continue to show up when that's the reality for us and, and not, you know, pretend like it's something else? So that's what we're going to explore today. But let me introduce Vani's work a little bit. So she is the racial equity specialist at the Colorado Department of Health and Environment. She has experience in the areas of collaborative practice as a national and state level consultant supporting communities with strategic initiatives focused on equity and inclusion in public health, early childhood, uh, child protection, and the court systems. And so uh, we just want to also mention that Vani is kind enough to show up with us today, um, really you know, representing her own individual views, so not the the views of um, her workplace. So that's, you know, another disclaimer for today. <laughs> um, so, Vani, will you just start us off telling us a bit more about you and your path and your background and how you ended up focusing specifically on public health and then focusing as well as on, like, the inner work? Yeah. <clears throat> Thanks, Emily. Absolutely. So just a little bit of um, my background, my I was born in India. My parents and I moved to the States when I was nine years old. And so I think part of the way in which I, you know, see the world and my perspectives are heavily informed by kind of my immigrant identity as well as kind of navigating both those bicultural or multicultural lenses. And so I think when we had first moved to the state, right, we 
all had, or at least my parents and I had this like rose colored lens. And, you know, this was in 1997. And so there was this big, big like hype over America and United States. And and I, I think it still exists to some degree globally, but I think particularly at that time in the nineties, it was so, so present of like, if you're able to immigrate, you're able to give your kids all this opportunity, all this access, all this this, 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 right? This great American dream. And it was so, so omnipresent everywhere. And through social capital, and because my dad's sister had immigrated in the 80s, and because of her her connections to her husband and all of these things, really this access to social capital allowed us to have that opportunity, right? And I say that because a lot of times people think you could just, you know, move here or all, and it's, it's just really arduous. Anyways, and so I think Moving to the States, even at a young age, it became really obvious to me that, oh, it, it isn't this great land that we keep talking about or hearing about. And I think in, in high school, I kind of really had this realization of like, wow, although this is the claim we make all the time, there is a lot of inequities even within the States and across different populations of people and depending on the color of your skin. And you know, my very first day in, I think it was fourth grade, just, it was so, so obvious that I was the other, right? And so those comments still remain with me. They're really hurtful. And I think with that, yeah. Mm. And without having that language to really unpack like what was happening, right? Of being othered, I still carry that with me and I still am unpacking that, right? Of like, what does it mean to be in spaces where you belong or when you're constantly othered? when you're not part of the dominant culture. And for me, I think it's also interesting because I had moved from a place where like it was the dominant culture. I lived in a place where it was, it was multicultural. Of course, India is, you know, very large country. South, I'm from South India and different populations, different languages. And yet, like when you go from that and you're thrown in as a nine, 10 year old into this totally different space, it was tough. Like, and, and, and I don't even think I realized how tough it was when I was, that young. And then it was more like, okay, well, what are the coping strategies, right? So you're like assimilating, you're trying to fit in and all of these pieces. And so I remember there was a part of me um, in high school. I, I always refer back to this book. I think it was, um, it was, it was talking about kind of the different educational lack of educational opportunities for folks in like uh, New York and the Queens and Bronx area specifically. And I was just kind of like, in my little world, didn't understand it. And it, and I was like, wait, what? wait a minute. I thought everybody was supposed to have this great access and that's just not true. And even going through my own journey with my parents, my parents initially were working in the food industry and, you know, working minimum wage jobs and kind of the kind of typical sort of immigrant stereotypes of like what people do. And and so that was also really difficult, I think. And so I was unpacking a lot of this as I was growing up and just the inequities became really, really apparent to me. And so that was sort of my initial drive to like, well, why why do certain populations have better health and why don't others? What it, What is that? And Can I ask you a, a quick question? Yeah. You, you mentioned like I was unpacking that as I was growing up. What supported you unpacking that? You know, I'm not sure I had a ton of support, right? Because it's, I'm doing a lot of the unpacking now as an adult in a lot of ways. I think because everybody was so busy just surviving, right? That there wasn't that luxury to be like, 
be able to unpack. So I think that's where I bring that like intersection of like, we really have to think about our own individual trauma as well as some of the collective trauma pieces, because we all come with our own personal experiences and oftentimes they're painful. And so if we're not able to really do that as we're going through it, it's all within us, right? It's within our bodies. It's, it's all over. And if we're not metabolizing that in kind of healthy ways or not even healthy, just if we're not metabolizing it, then it stays with you and you're carrying this everywhere you go. And that can be really just, you know, it's, it's this thing that's permanently with you. Right. Like it's going to have to get unpacked or released at some point and that can come out in different ways. Thank you for mentioning that. So you're kind of tuning into health, access to health and equity. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was really just curious. I'm like, well, why is it that, you know, black folks, they're especially for men. Why was their hypertension rate so much? Like that was my, this was like, you know, as I was thinking about what I want to do for college and, and things. And so that's when I was initially exposed um, or introduced to public health. And so I, I brought that lens. And interestingly, after I had graduated um, with, with my public health degree, I didn't even end up going in kind of the typical prevention work as people talk about, right? I ended up and, you know, I graduated in 08, 09, and that was when not a lot of opportunities. And so I decided to go to grad school. And right after my very first job was typically when we talk about public health, there's kind of upstream, right? You do all the work to prevent any kind of bad thing from happening in the first place to more downstream where you're providing supports or like a lot of intensive resources or things where things may have already, something has happened and you're trying to kind of remedy or fix the situation. So I think of downstream work is where I started. And so when I say downstream work, I'm talking about the child welfare system and the court system. And so I had, you know, the awesome privilege to work as this national consultant, got to go to just different states and observe their child welfare systems and and specifically this one program called Family Treatment Drug Courts. And this was for um, folks that parents or caregivers that were at the risk of termination of parental rights, right? They had maybe a lot of substance use disorders or they they were maybe deep in their substance use and they had to go through treatment, they had to go through particular things. And if they kind of go through this process, then, and if, you know, they graduate the program, then they may be not at the risk of termination of parental rights. And, and, you know, when I was, it's, it's funny, as I'm reflecting on this, I'm just like realizing how absurd it sounds, because at that, at that time, I was like, wow, this is great. Like, a, a, a small chunk of parents get this opportunity. But it's really, you know, in a lot of ways, I think it's punitive, right? To say, like, when there's such a disproportionate number of children of color in the child welfare system, and then a certain slice gets this access to this special program, it's really not equitable. So while I was doing that, I think I had this after, you know, four, four years of that and going to different parts of different states, I worked closely in Alabama, Colorado was one of the states and New York was the other, just saw the gross inequities. And again, it was predominantly folks of color and it was children of color that were being removed at higher rates that were, when I say removed, removed from their homes or placed into the foster in the child welfare system. And it was really hard. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute. My background is in prevention. Like why, why am I here all the way downstream? I really need to kind of move further upstream. And so, and around that time, I kind of moved to Colorado for personal reasons. And 
found myself working in early childhood. And, and that's when I met you, Emily, where we connected for the retreat for our initiative. And that also, again, <coughs> a different system. But again, the theme was the same. Why is it that in kindergarten or preschool or whatnot, why is it that little kiddos are getting harsher discipline? Children of color are getting disciplined or, the, or it's like kind of the same things, right? The same. So I had very quickly realized, okay, take any system. It doesn't matter health, finance, whatever. It's it's the same. People of color are disproportionately impacted. And I knew it. I think I always knew it. But I think going through my professional work experiences just sort of showed it to me in this, like, you know, those neon signs of like, this is like, this is the experience of people. And I think that's what really drove me to my current work where I'm able to focus specifically on race equity, because I think I'm having this deep, deep understanding. Like if we're not addressing the root cause, everything else is just a band-aid, right? Or everything else is just all of these incremental changes is not really going to get us to this, this deep transformative change that I think people clearly want. Maybe not all, but I do think there's a deep desire from most folks for this transformative change. And so how do we get there? How do we have this culture shift? How do we have this paradigm shift? And so I think that requires a lot of the inner work. That requires a lot of the interpersonal work. I think it also, without saying, requires the structural work, right? Because we we all are living within systems and institutions and partake in it. And so, so I think those are the different kind of pieces of like how I ended up here today. (laughs) Sorry, that was long winded. No, it's really great to kind of set the stage in context. So you've kind of come to this point of, I mean, is it, is it right to say that you've come to this point that, that the crux of the racial equity work is in the inner work? Or do you think that that inner work comes before the policy? I know there's many ways to think about no, that's that's a great question. You know, I think, well, one, I don't think there's a right answer, obviously, but I think it it's it's sometimes simultaneous, right? I don't I don't think that you necessarily have to do the inner work in order to do the systems work, right? But I think as an individual, right, if I'm coming up and I'm trying to do systems work or change the culture of an organization. If I'm not doing my work, it can be really inauthentic, right? Or maybe you're not showing up in conversations really ready to engage with the individual, right? Like, are you able to tune into all the different kind of intercultural kind of differences that can occur? And so I think if you're not able to self-reflect and have some time to pause and really think about, okay, how am I showing up in interactions or what's happening, right? What's happening in my body? Like, right? A lot of times people can be either in a state of like dismissal, right? This is, this is too much. I don't want to talk about race at work. Like what? Like, I'm just here to do my job. So when that's the culture and then you bring in an equity consultant or a DEI initiative, and maybe, I don't know, let's just say your, you know, your workforce, maybe predominantly white, and maybe there's a, a small chunk that wants to do the work. And then most people are like, I'm just here, you know, I'm getting I'm here for my other work passion. I'm just here to get my paycheck. How are you, like, it's hard to engage those folks, right? So then you start enroll, like 
discharging all these initiatives. And then when it doesn't work in a year or five years, then the poor consultant, like the, the one consultant is like, is kind of tasked with transforming the culture. And when it doesn't happen, like people are shocked. Wow. Our, our DI initiative didn't work. What? Like, so I think that's where I think it's really important, right? Like we're all individuals, we're all individuals within systems. And so there's a responsibility for all of us to be able to unpack our own stuff. But that doesn't mean we're not holding the systems accountable. The structural work also needs to be happening as well. And I think, you know, it's not either or, it's it's all. Like all of this work needs to be happening at the same time, which can seem daunting. And I think that's why uh, it's really important to rest and stay the same. And right. And (laughs) not get burned out because that is also very common in, in this field. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, um, I don't have to, I mean, I am back at church. I'm in the back row jumping up and down. Y'all are preaching right now um, because it's it's just so, it's so amazing to me to have us resonate and we never met, Vanny. You know what I mean? It's like, I didn't know this early on in my life, but health has always been like the entry point for freedom for me. You know what I mean? Even when I was growing up and I didn't know it, you know, I always felt as though, I gotta be a little healthy to 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 do this, or I want to to smile more to make people laugh, and always in ways to make people feel good. You know what I'm saying? So, like now that I've dedicated my life towards social justice, you know, entry point, and my entry point is always healthcare and healthcare system and equity in there. However, you said something that that struck a chord with me that all systems need to be looked at if true equity is to be reached, you know, um, like finance, housing, you know, education, you know, all of these systems have been skillfully weaponized by the construct of race, you know, weaponizing the aspect that if you don't look a certain way, if you are in a certain class, if you are in a certain culture, it's going to be a lot more difficult to be successful in a country of success that is marketed as such, you know? And so at the end of the day, I, I feel as though, and, and and me and Emily here, we, we have similar opinions, but I think mine is a lot more outrageous that unless we, I, I am as audacious as the system that is already in place, it's gonna be very, very difficult to do that. However, everyone has their role. You have the blessing to have the vantage point and the lens as an immigrant as do I, you know, like that struck core with me too. My family's immigrants. And so it was marketed as Courtney, you finally got in med school. Oh my God, you made it brother. Oh, my son is a doctor. Oh my God, we've made it. And now I get in there and I'm like, yo, what the fuck is this, man? This is harder than the streets. Like this is harder than my community. Like it's not the work. It's like, I got to smile when I don't want to smile. I got to dance. I felt like I was on Broadway. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's tap dancing like hell. Like, am I Sammy David Jr.? Like, what are we talking about? You know? And so it, it kind of showed me that I have to represent a possibility for individuals that look like me. Because people that look like me, they could be smart, they could be brilliant, don't feel as though they have the right skin color, the right culture, they don't talk the right way, they don't know the right people to get into a world and it is honestly, it's not built for us. So to hear you talk about the system in such a way and articulate it in such a way that um, 
I mean, wow. I feel like I, I just want to hear more preaching. So thank you. Thank you for, for, for doing that. I appreciate it. Bonnie, I'm curious. So I always, I always love to like kind of focus deep in on like, what does this inner work look like? And I'm curious, like if you were working with Courtney and I, let's say in a professional setting and it was like a, you know, some sort of training or something like that. Um, like, how would you encourage us to really show up and do our inner work? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, that's a great question, Emily. And thank you for asking that. Um, absolutely. I think so. Inner work, I think, can be just, it may sound scary to people, or maybe they're like, oh, that's woo, or like, that's not the work that I'm here for. Like, I'm just here to get a job done, right? Or in, in, in usually organizational settings. But all I, when I say inner work, right, all, a lot of times, and it's simple as just being really mindful of what's happening, right? And being able to notice what's arising. And a lot of this, I give credit to my ability to tap into my yoga roots and being able to go through kind of that connection with that mind, body, breath. And there's so much science behind all of this, right? This isn't new. This has been, you know, ancestral wisdom. It's been appropriated and packaged in different ways as wellness industry and all this stuff. But let's set aside that, right? Let's just think about what's happening with the mind, breath, body connection, right? Anytime we're engaging in just, nor it doesn't even have to be a conversation about race. Just think of any any conversation where there could be potential conflict. And Emily and, and Courtney, you all know this, right? What's happening in our brains? Just even a simple conflict over, I don't know, like, why, why'd you leave the dish, dishes in the sink, right? Where our brains are activated. And so there's that threshold. And if we're not able to remain in that threshold, we're not able to stay in conversation and really listen to the person we're in conversation with. And so in maybe these organizational trainings where there is a focus on race equity, oftentimes race equity or equity is the trigger word. And if I'm already showing up for a training and I'm like, oh, here's this equity conversation and my brain's already disengaged, and I don't know that my brain is disengaged or I'm not really here or I'm dismissive of the conversation, you've lost your audience. You've lost maybe a good chunk of people. And so I think as, you know, being in workforce development, what I try to do in some of the trainings that we bring is really bring in those cues to pay attention. And we set in time for reflection. We set in time as an individual, take time, like here are some prompts, like think through what this means for you. Because a lot of times in these conversations around equity, it's all intellectualization. It's about this is what happened. This is what we're doing. And it's all just very logical up in the head. And so when I say the inner work, I'm bringing in pieces of the feel, which we are often in this world, in the society, we are constantly reinforced to disconnect from ourselves. We're constantly reinforced to disconnect from others. And so it's just bringing in those pieces of connection. So pieces of connection looks like, okay, in a training, having that individual moment to self-reflect. Starting the training with maybe an opening breath practice, or maybe it's at the end doing a loving kindness practice that's focused specifically on racism. And so these are things where we're like trying to bring in the head, body, and heart. And it's it's not, ooh, right? It's just, that's what we need as adult learners, adult 
to actually have something stick with us, it needs all of that needs to be tapped. And I think often we can get into a space where where we're just doing the head part, but not the the heart and kind of body body part. Yeah, I see that for myself. How I like in conversations will quickly move to intellectualizing, you know, and that's not where transformation really happens. I mean, logic is important, but if the body's response is ignored, then that's brings a whole other host of issues that are going to come out in other places. And what comes to mind, and Emily's right, you know, but a lot of times people of color don't have the luxury to to process their their, their hurt and their pain. Because like you said before, we're just surviving, you know, and, and that takes time to do the work of unpacking trauma. And time is not something that we have the luxury of when we're, when we're living this, this human experiment that um, we do here in North America. You know what I mean? And so if you're an immigrant and we're here trying to live the American dream, we have to uh, assimilate and we have to get in a way that can push us forward. So if we do have mental health issues or medical issues that is not laying us on our back and we can, we can go to work, we got to muscle through that, even if it's killing us, you know? And so I think trauma work, if we're talking about from an equity standpoint, again, has to bounce back to the system that we're trying to be in. Because if the system says, hey, rain, sleet, or snow, immigrant, man of color, woman of color, you got to be at work. Like, we can't also think that we can have time to process trauma if we can't have the time to process the trauma. Like it's a it's a conundrum that we can't we can't get around, and so like you said, has to be system work. So thank you for that. Like I have a, I do have a question though, Lanny. I mean, unless you unless you have something more to pile on that preacher, it's gone. Okay, okay. <laughs> All right. What did you mean earlier when you said um, the myth of access? Because I think you know what you mean, but I think that'll be a good thing for our listeners to hear. Like, what do you mean the myth of access? Yeah, I think, you know, when we talk about the, what, what's the word, the American dream, right? That's what's sold, the myth of the American dream, right? Like you, or even it's the carry yourself from the bootstrap kind of thing. Like once you come to America, you work hard enough, you do this, and then you should, right? If you're the good, good immigrant, you should have access to all these resources and opportunities. But that's just not true, right? How many immigrants are working really, really hard, really like, backbreaking labor work and yet there's no access and or there's not the same sort of equitable access to opportunities and resources so i think that's just the myth of like people are sold this like you come to the states you work you can have you know you can make it but in the way the systems are have been designed and the way in which they're inequitable for pe- for for people of color specifically black and indigenous folks it's just not equitable and so you don't have equitable access to resources. And so that's that's the myth. If it's okay, I'm still kind of like chewing on this, <laughs> the inner work and the trauma. And as I'm hearing, you know, Courtney talking about how people of color, like there's a lot of time required to do this. This is a gross generalization. And then like reflecting on my own trauma that can come up in, in situations. So I do a lot of equity work and, I am conflict avoidant. And so I'm like, you know, that's a really hard line to walk because <laughs> um, it's 
so much conflict. So I have, I mentioned the conflict avoidance because I have my own like, you know, triggers that come up there of like, am I going to be okay? And then just doing, you know, through kind of through the course of this podcast, like really tuning into the intergenerational trauma of being the perpetrator of violence, like in terms of whiteness and the legacy of whiteness in this country, there's trauma there. And I'm curious whether you feel like in terms of transforming a system, basically should the white people in a, be in a room together and the people of color be in a room together? Because it seems like they're very different groups of trauma that are being exposed that can traumatize each other. Absolutely. And that's a great question. And I think that's why there's a, it's, it's beautiful if we're able to have those race-based type, you know, groups when we're doing this, sometimes it's, we're able to, and other times we're not, but absolutely. I think anytime there is a multicultural space without a doubt, there can be ways in which we may be harming whether intentionally or not, right. The harm still occurs. So I think if we're able to have spaces for BIPOC and I found this particularly for me, so, so just helpful, right. Not only is it validating, right. So it oftentimes when I am participating in BIPOC spaces, it is validating. It is healing. I don't feel like I have to further explain my, like where I'm coming from or like why I'm saying this or that. So there's this baseline where naturally I do feel like my body system, right? Like even when I'm walking into a room, I do like the constant, like, of like, oh, what is it? Like, what's the percent? What's the makeup of this room? And like, oh, do I see a, like a few people of color? Because if I do, okay, I can take, there's this relaxation that happens. Whereas if it's like, you know, I, I work in a predominantly white space and oftentimes if I'm the only person of color, then I'm not able to relax in that same way like there's the tension that I'm holding, right? And so absolutely, I think there's great beauty and benefit and be able to have spaces that is just for BIPOC. I think, you know, white folks need to be able to unpack their work in their own ways, right? Because the work looks different. Oftentimes for folks of color, it's to be able to have the opportunity to like pause and breathe and rest because the burden is so much. And so coming into a space where you're already taxed with all the stuff that's happening in your own world. And then you're coming. And then is it really fair to expect the person to have this equity conversation? Probably not. That's already a lot of work just existing and being. And so I think when you're able to have those separate spaces, you can <laughs> unpack it. And if you're able to come back and have those meaningful conversations, great. But oftentimes that's the thing, right? All of this requires a little bit of facilitation. And like, to your disclaimer, we're having these conversations because we have some like this relationship, but when you're just kind of forcing or sometimes telling people to partake in these conversations, like everybody is just coming in with their own stuff. And so how can we have some meaningful impact if we don't address kind of that baseline of even our experiences are different, or we're not putting in kind of guardrails or thresholds to kind of help folks navigate what's happening. How do you kind of level set when, um, like, let's say for whatever reason, the organization is not doing race-based groups, it's combined groups. And I run into this in organizations I work with too, where especially you have like 
the baby boomers who are like, you show up at work and you just get things done and you, you get your paycheck and you go home and you don't bring what, what is this? Like bring your whole self to work. Like what, it, what is that? It doesn't have a space here. It can be destructive. It can lead to really hard conversations that could have a bad impact on the organization. And then you have another group that's like, yes, I'm, I want to do my work. I want to see a change. And I'm just curious how, how you work with that. Yeah. So I think there's two parts. So there's this one part where I think in equity work, right? Like with all work, there is this developmental continuum, right? Like in, in a lot of the other, there's skills, right? We as people need to be able to engage in these conversations or in, in doing this work. And I don't think it's talked about in that way. So in this continuum or this like learning journey, right? You have folks over here, you have folks that are maybe doing the work. This is how they live and breathe and do the work. And then there's there's other part of the people where it's so value ingrained. Like I'm not here for the people that are like totally in a different space, no matter what I do or what I, it's not going to change their perspective. That is not my job. I'm here to help facilitate this conversation or help facilitate the session. And if you're able to open yourself to being able to see another perspective, great, right? There's always going to be a part of this like little percentage where like they're disengaged or will never see it. And I'm not here to change your value. I'm here to help maybe shift perspectives if that's even possible for some folks. And so I think just recognizing that, right? Because oftentimes in anti-racism work, it is that, right? We go into a room expecting that you're either like you're here, you're with us, or you're you're not. And I totally get that. And at the same time, sometimes because of people's experiences, they haven't had maybe the opportunity to see it or experience or have those competencies developed because they weren't had didn't have those opportunities or exposure. And I'm even talking for people of color, not just white folks, right? And so how can we honor that? And so for the folks that really truly want to shift we can bring them along. And for the other folks that are just, you know, in their own, that's fine. You can stay over there. And I'm not here to change your values because I think anytime we enter these conversations, there's a lot of fear. You're trying to take away my way of knowing and being when it's not, we're taking away. It's just additive, right? Are you able to shift your perspective, adapt to other cultures, see other perspectives? Like if, we're able to do that, then we can move along kind of that learning continuum of anti-racism. Yeah, it kind of seems like for that that group who maybe they haven't had the exposure and the competencies that that inner work is simply like, how do I keep listening? You know, like, how do I, whoa, here comes a defense. How do, what helps me work through that? How do I keep listening? Like, you don't necessarily, like, that's kind of step one, right? I mean, all this work comes back to listening. <laughs> And breathing. I feel like that's like, I mean, the very unglamorous <laughs> kind of like base of like, can you take a deep breath when you're triggered? Can you keep listening? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that you said that, Emily, about breath, right? Because I try to incorporate a lot of breath work again into like some of my anti-racism work. And often some of the responses I get were like, Thank you for building that in because I just realized I haven't had a moment to take take that time or I just haven't had. And so it's not the typical way 
again, going back to like, we often intellectualize these conversations. We do all the talk, 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 but not feel or be, or just, just be. And so taking that moment is so crucial. And I think we need more of it. You see, I I call myself, uh, I try to be a man of, of the people, individuals who haven't had the luxury to intellectualize because, or, or think about competencies because they don't have the time to take that time. So they don't even understand what that means. You know, a lot of times I feel a responsibility to speak for them because I've had the misfortune and fortune, no matter what you perspective you have at it, to live in both worlds, you know, um, crucially highly educated versus individuals who had to sacrifice education to survive. And so to articulate what you guys are just saying for, for those individuals is a priority of mine, you know, and like all this is, is a conversation between uncomfortability and unsafety. You know, um, we have had for our own safety have had to be uncomfortable. You know, we've had to take a lot of shit to make sure that we won't die. You know, and so when we're talking about DEI work, like I think the beginning is to to say this is a space where you can say the system is fucked up. This is a space where you can say and feel what you want to feel. Because again, a lot of times we don't have the luxury of our own feelings. You know, and and if we're really going to honestly address the system, we have to address the trauma and the fear that you said, Manny, that it invokes. Because if we don't follow the mandates of said system, we can't feed our family. We can't have a house, no matter how fucked up it is. We can't have a house. We can't have. We can't get to work. We can't even have a job. So we have to learn how to survive, which is why BIPOC people are still thriving because we have the art and the tact of taking shit and making diamonds. And so what does trauma look like to us now that we've made our trauma a like a lifestyle. That's just what poverty is. It's, it's like, it's a lifestyle now. It's, it has become a, a way of being for individuals that live in poverty. So when you have someone, like my perspective as a 42-year-old man has started to change versus when I was 25 about poverty, you know? So poverty when you're 25 is like, yo, this is cool. I thought it ain't that bad. Look, I got all this. I got all that. I don't got to worry but then you, a perspective change comes when you 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 see other cultures and see like, oh, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't disrespect women in that way. Maybe I should read a book once in a while. Maybe I should eat better. That is a, a perspective change that if we are honestly doing DEI work, we have to address. And I'm glad you said that with the perspective change, because if we if I went into DEI work. When I was 25, it would be woo-woo shit. I'm like, yo, man, what the hell are you talking about? Breathe. Come on, man. Yo, what are we doing right now? I'm not going to waste my time with this. But now at 42, after I've had a perspective, breathing is necessary. You know, sitting and being is necessary. You know, and so like having lost relationships because I can't be is now a real thing, you know, versus like just a... a having the same perspective. So not to over talk because I think everything was just said by you, you know, and, and Emily just brilliantly brought it into the room, to the airways, whatever, wherever we are, and said what I am saying a lot less articulately than you guys did. But yeah, just the perspective change has to come 
and DEI work when you're addressing individuals who have lived in their reality for so long. An hour work of DEI training or even a week or even a consistent monthly thing for two, three years may not even start to scratch the surface of an ingrown perspective. We can only hope, you know? So, yeah. Courtney, you know, I really appreciate you just raising that because I think, you know, the work that I'm kind of referencing to is kind of in that organizational setting, right? But like you hit on it, right? This can be a luxury, right? There are folks that are just surviving. There is no opportunity to maybe even take that time to reflect and pause. So thank you for just highlighting that. Absolutely. And at the same time, just going back to, I don't want to take away from this for your listeners. I'm not saying the inner work is the only answer. Like, let's be real. There's structural changes that need to happen. The systems are designed to perpetuate inequitable outcomes for all. And I also have this inner struggle as a person that works for a government institution, right? That all institutions have caused harm, previous and present. And so how, you know, thinking about how do I be in a system that that could continue to perpetuate harm and still do this work is different. Um, But just, yeah, thank you for highlighting that because I think for so many of us, for so many folks, we are just surviving and there is no luxury to do the inner work. And that is also a symptom of white supremacy culture, right? When it's about productivity, when it's about hustling, when it's about we have to survive because we need food, money, shelter. So there is that piece. And I don't want to let that go because that's, that's a big, that's a big part of it. Oh my God. So I'm sorry. I know we gotta, we gotta wrap up. I know, but I just like, even poverty is a a product of white supremacy because like when you're on the street, you hustle, you gotta hustle. You have to survive. You have to do it. The game is still the same, whether you're in a, a office, whether you're in a hospital, whether you're on a street corner, like everyone is just trying to to live this American dream by any means necessary. You know what I'm saying? So like, it's just crazy how this this thing called white supremacy is such a powerful thing that even when individuals think they're not in a a, a structure, they most definitely are. You know, I mean, I just I just had to say that. I'm just noticing, like listening to to both of you, this like kind of knot in my chest and at the top of my stomach. And there's like just this feeling of like, God, like racial equity work is so cutting edge in the sense of like we're we're driving towards this with this world that we haven't seen yet, where there's more equal access. And there's so much confusion and like how do we do this right? How do we not cause further harm? Like, how do I take ownership for for my triggers and for my trauma in this conversation as to help move the conversation forward and to listen? And there's almost the sense, and I'm I'm curious, Bonnie, if you feel this of like, maybe I'll just I'll just speak from the white perspective, but like there's a sense for for me of like if that knot isn't there, like coming and going, I'm probably not creating change. I'm probably not doing the work. Like if I'm just like donating money to an organization and feeling like that's doing the work. I mean, that is important. We have to support organizations and the leaders in this, this work. But I guess the question is like, is this tension and constriction necessarily part of racial equity work? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that without saying, absolutely right. That's the everyday experiences for folks of color, right? This navigating of back and forth. And without a doubt, like, there's just a lot we're holding and maybe not even recognizing, right? Again, to Courtney's point, if you're in a state of survival, you don't have the luxury to think about what's happening within you or any of that. And so how do we continue to hold the systems accountable, be able to reshape it, right? Or if we're looking for something altogether completely different, that that is the end goal, right? Where race doesn't predict how you do in life. That's not what we live in. Race is a predictor for how a person does in life without a doubt. Like, again, going back to any system, it's impacted by your race. I mean, it's visceral for me and maybe for other folks, but, you know, I don't think, it can't not be visceral, right? Like I, I feel that's the that's the draw to the work. That is why I feel it. And it's it's heartbreaking, right? And so yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, other than just to affirm, absolutely it's visceral. Absolutely. I always feel the knot and the the chest and the pain and the in your throat, all of that. That's all there. I don't know if that was your question though. Yeah, no. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows what the question was? Um, do you do you have any final thoughts or advice? You know, maybe there's some listeners who are like, how I how can I move further into to really doing this work in a trauma informed system? Yeah, you know, again, I think there's no right way. I think it's just be, be mindful of how all folks right. Be mindful of how you're able to show up in spaces, and if you have the luxury notice what's happening within you, notice how, what you're carrying, what you're bringing. And at the same time, if you are able to work in institutions or systems, like without a doubt, (laughs) we may not be responsible for how we got here, but I think we have a responsibility to reshape the environments and the places that we are, because all of us were part of those systems. And if you as an individual within that system can be reflective of what's happening, how you're showing up, then at least you start there. And then, then you can, then you can also simultaneously think about, okay, what are some of the practices or what are some of the organizational policies that I can, you know, impact or change, but you know, it starts with us, right? Start with you and then trickle out or do it simultaneously. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge today. Really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're going to wrap up now. Is there, uh, we'll put any, you know, social media handles or ways that people can reach out to you in the, the show notes. And yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.